Please hold whilst we connect you to Redacted. Hi, this is Oliver Alexander. And this is Rose Greenfield. Hi, I'm Yvette Chaparro, and you are listening to Redacted. 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 Born in the District of Columbia and raised in the country of Columbia, Yvette Chaparro teaches at Parsons School of Design in New York, the number one design school in the United States. At Parsons, she is currently the Director of Industrial Design Master's Program and Assistant Professor of Product and Industrial Design. Yvette is also a current PhD candidate at TransArt and LJMU. She has over a decade of experience running her own practice, creating products for companies such as Calvin Klein, Villarian Bosch, Ralph Lauren, and many more in a wide range of fields. Welcome to the show, Yvette, and thanks for being here. Yvette, could you tell us what's your story in 100 words or less? Well, my story, I think, is much less than 100 words, but I'm an industrial designer. I live in New York. I am a professional practitioner. I teach and I'm a lifelong student. I'm curious about everything and constantly trying to understand what is it that we do as designers. And I'm always excited about new ways of looking at it and new ways of understanding what design is. That's great. So how did you discover industrial design? I'm one of those lucky people who knew industrial design when I was younger because I have an uncle who's an industrial designer. He had studied in the UK and he moved back to Colombia where he started teaching. And I was very young when I arrived to Colombia. He was already there and he was already teaching. He married one of his students. So my aunt is also an industrial designer. And they were constantly telling me that I would be an industrial designer. And I fought it till the bitter end. I guess they were right. I was going to be an industrial designer. You fought it. What did you want to be instead? For the longest time, I was going to be an astronaut. And then I was in between architecture, mechanical engineering, something that would get me there to NASA somehow. I failed to realize that there was no spatial program in Colombia. So it would be a little difficult for me to get there. I can get that. I had the same dream that got crushed. (laughs) (laughs) Walk us back a bit. What was education like for you in studying ID? I studied my undergraduate in Colombia, in South America, at the Pontifical Universidad Javeriana. It was a five-year professional degree, so it was pretty intense. We got really deep into what design was. I had wonderful faculty and great opportunities of exploring what design was, and it allowed me to try various things. In Colombia, maybe I'm just talking for myself, we don't learn to become makers as much. That I learned afterwards a little more. I had an entry point to what industrial design could be. And that led me in a way to understanding science fiction as a way of an outlet for us. And I ended up thinking that I needed to add some knowledge about film. And that's what brought me to New York. I ended up coming to New York to do a little bit of film after my industrial design. And of course, I couldn't escape. I ended up doing a documentary on industrial designers as my final project for that. I started working as an industrial designer in New York. What was the film that inspired you to move to the Big Apple? My thesis project for my undergrad had to do with looking at the future as a way of understanding what people needed or feared or were looking for at that moment in society at large. So I was looking at movies like Blade Runner. I was looking at movies like 2001. I was looking at whatever look of the future existed at different times. I'm a little sad that The Fifth Element didn't make that list of yours. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, that might have been later. (laughs) 97. It's an old movie now. So you studied film for a bit, but it translated into a Masters of ID. Is that correct? Well, I started working. So I worked for a while. One of the things I always wanted to do was to teach industrial design. The way of doing that was taking on a master's degree. I did it at Pratt Institute, where at the time, it's no longer the case, but at the time they had a pathway which was part-time. 
So I could continue to work full time. I was designing faucets, taps and sinks and tubs for kitchens and bathrooms. And at night or after work and on weekends, I would end up at Pratt working on my master's. During this initial time where you started your career, were you working for someone else? Did you start your own studio? And what was the dream? As a young designer in New York, I ended up working on a lot of freelance jobs, a lot of little things here and there, trying to get my foot in the door. I ended up at a place called Totem Design. They were a two-sided business. One side was promoting young designers and selling design by mostly Scandinavian and young industrial designers in the U.S. At the same time, they were a store. They sold furniture. And they hired me because I was sort of that in between doing film, knowing about design, very interested in design. So I was hired as a design assistant and director of Totem TV. It was great for me. It was like doing both things that I loved. I was chasing designers all day long with my camera. And at the same time, I was learning how to design in the industry. Then I had a couple of other part-time or small jobs. And then I became a full-time designer and in-house in different companies. So I didn't open my studio until later. I think it must have been 2010 when I opened my studio. I had just finished my master's degree and we moved to San Francisco for a bit. And at that moment, I had to start somehow. So I started knocking on doors. I started talking to people. That's when my studio started and it kept going, even though I had full-time jobs in between, but it still survived somehow at nights and weekends. It kept going. You're working on multiple projects at the same time and juggling all of these things. What was that period like initially? It was very exciting. It was almost like having a vacation every day. I would have a whole day of work and I was super excited to get home and keep working on something else. And the same happened the other way around. The next day it was like, oh, great, my job. And then I would keep doing this. And I remember I started teaching in San Francisco as well, which was another super exciting part of it. I started teaching a class at Academy of Art University in San Francisco in the industrial design master's program. They gave me the first studio. So I was really excited with my first class. I did that for the whole semester. That became part of also my vacation. One day I went to class, one day I went to do my freelance, one day I went to do other kinds of jobs. I kept doing this. We were in San Francisco only for a year. We missed New York too much. So we moved back to New York and I kept my company open and I kept working for my clients in San Francisco as well. What did you miss about New York? I think I missed meeting people outside. There was an inverse public and private in San Francisco. And that might be my own view of it. Maybe it's not universal, but I felt like in New York, you go outside and you meet people at restaurants, at the park, at the bar. In San Francisco, you had to know people in order to get invited to a garden party or to get invited to dinner or something. There was not as much living the city as you would think that we do have in New York. It could be that we were there a very short period of time. We didn't get to that. So it's more of a sense of community and open socialization in New York than San Fran at the time. It felt that way, yeah. So like Seinfeld. Rolling back a bit, when you did start your own business and you were knocking on doors, how did you land your first big client? What did that process look like? I arrived in San Francisco. I looked at what big companies existed. And there was one that caught my eye, which was Restoration Hardware. I imagined that they would have hundreds of designers and that they needed somebody in there at all times. I actually had no contact. I didn't know anybody there. So I went into LinkedIn and I looked for the name that sounded the nicest. And I just contacted them. (laughs) And I was really lucky that they needed a faucet designer at the time, a tap designer, and they had not posted the advertisement yet for requesting somebody in that field. So I was very lucky that they needed someone. I had that experience and I got hired as a freelance designer. I would go in a couple days a week. I would work from home. Sometimes the whole week I was there. 
It depended on the week, on what work they needed. Something that was really interesting is that in the U.S., it feels like they need proof that you can do a certain kind of design. If you've been designing taps, that's what you know how to design. And they're not taking a risk with anybody else. They want the person who's designed a tap before. This gave me an opportunity of starting to show them that I could design other things. So they would come over and they would say, Yvette, have you ever designed a lamp? And I would say, no, but you know, I can do that. I really can. I'm an industrial designer. I can design these things. They would give me the opportunity, the chance to do it. As soon as I did it, I could add it to my list. So then they knew that I could do that and I could keep doing that kind of work. I kept adding to my list of possibilities of things that I could do. And it was very eye-opening to me because I always thought of designers as generalists. And I believe I'm one of them that I can go and do whatever you need me to do. This was an opportunity to do that. So it always seems to be the man who forces us to get pigeonholed, right? Yes, it's about applying the concepts and industrial designers. That's one of our great skills is to be generalists and apply those principles to anything without being pigeonholed. Every project is a learning experience and it's part of our process, right? What do I need to learn to fulfill this project? Yeah, exactly. When you did start lecturing and you're obviously designing by night, would you say working in the field has helped you become a better teacher than those who just went straight into academia? Yes, I think it goes both ways, actually. For the longest time, I was mostly a practitioner, and I would just go teach one class a week. I started as a part-time faculty. I think I learned so much from teaching, from the questions I was getting, from having to reflect on what we do as designers and how to transmit that to somebody else, or how to challenge somebody and ask them questions about what they're doing, that it went back to my professional side. And then I was able to help the students with what I knew, my experience, what it was that I had had to do with a project or how I had to talk to somebody or what are the things you have to look at when you're presenting, how to make a proposal valid or give it some sort of story. All that came from the other side. It's a continuous flow from both sides. Would you say there's any pitfalls that someone who might have been a pure academic who never practiced? should watch out for, what they can do to mitigate that? My recommendation would be to try to collaborate with someone, try to get into the actual process of design. As you say, they're only looking at one area and asking questions. They're looking at the big picture, perhaps, but they might be unaware of all the other layers that you have to work with when you're in the actual industry or practicing, working with somebody else working with engineers, with salespeople, with marketing, with a client. There's a lot that goes on that you don't realize until you have to either tell somebody else what it entails or that you learn by doing. So speaking of the design process, how would you summarize the process that Parsons School of Design follows? That's an interesting question because I think in general, my answer to this would be we follow the same process. There's a universal design process, perhaps. And yes, some places will put more emphasis on one area or another. But what I think Parsons has as a strength is that we're open. We're open and flexible to applying that way of producing design, depending on what the students need, depending on what they come with, especially in the master's program. We want the students to tell us what it is that they want to explore. And we're here to support them, to challenge them, to push them to look at it in different ways. So we're not creating one Parsons industrial designer. We're helping each one of these students, each one of these people who come to our program to tell us who they want to be in and figure out who they are as designers. This obviously sounds like a good way forward. Why is it other universities don't do it this way? They might have some of this, right? The flexibility of being an industrial designer, because that's our nature, right? We're looking at different problems. We're looking at different ways of approaching the same question. But perhaps there's a lot of tradition involved, perhaps, where design is taught in this way, and this is what you're going to learn, and these are the steps you're going to follow. So it might fall onto a specific teacher or a specific student to get out of that box. 
And at Parsons, I think because it's the university based on social justice and change, we make it transparent. We put it inside of our mission. So right now, for example, the urgency is what are we going to do in the world? What are we going to do for the world right now? Since we are in this moment of urgent change, how can we apply everything we know? How can we ask those important questions to make change? Hey, everyone. This episode is sponsored by PCBWay, the go-to destination for printed circuit board prototyping, low-volume production, and PCB assembly. If your team is working on electronics and you're in need of prototype PCBs, I can't recommend PCBWay enough. You can get a quote instantly, even if your circuit board schematics are not finished yet. They can also help you with injection molded, 3D printed, sheet metal or vacuum cast prototypes. PCBWay is the circuit board prototyper of choice for companies like Samsung, Siemens, Honeywell, Tesla and Apple. But you don't have to be a big company to use their services. I've personally used their service to instantly get quotes and have prototype PCBs delivered in a timely manner. On top of all that, PCBWay is so excited to be working with us, they're offering a special discount just for our listeners. When you get a quote from PCBWay, be sure to use our promo code REDACTED for a special discount on us. You can find PCBWay in our episode description or go to PCBWay.com. Redacted. Do you think it's possible to become a professional industrial designer without going to university? I think it is possible. There's been examples throughout history of people who've either studied something else and ended up in our profession and have done an amazing job and are an example for all of us. For most of us, I think university gives us a chance of exploring without the stresses of having to work in the real world. Well, we're all in the real world, but in the industry, it takes away that stress of having to be in the industry with certain parameters and requirements, and you can't get out of those boxes. There's too much risk involved. And university gives us that chance, that chance of exploring, of making mistakes, of asking questions that nobody else is asking or proposing things that everybody else will say that's impossible. But we have that chance during university to do. So we get that space, that moment in time in our lives where we can just explore. The other side of that is that it gives us confidence. We can say, well, I did go through this program. I can call myself an industrial designer and I can actually solve this problem. Some people don't need that. Some people have that confidence and that's valid as well. That's right. Speaking of different types of people, do you have any advice for a neurodivergent grad on breaking into the industry? At the end of the day, it's about the work that you can show somebody in the industry, a client, somebody who's going to hire you, somebody who's going to collaborate with you, that you can actually get the work done, that you have a way of asking the right questions and getting to a proposal that can help whatever endeavor it is, whatever project you're interested in. And if you can show that, then there's many ways of doing that without having to speak like everybody else or having to do the same meetings that everybody else does. And we have tools, we have portfolios, we have websites that we can work on. And by showing the work in different ways, telling our story in different ways, I think we can get to becoming part of the industry. It's a tough question. It's a good answer, though. Yeah, it is. Because from people that are more unique or have different views, you can gain so much from their experience and get a different angle that you may not have had. Having diversity is always a good thing when you're working on projects, especially in the conceptual stages, to get those wacky ideas out that could lead to the final product. Maybe. It could also just add more chaos to the process. Yeah, it's a balance, right? Figure out what your weaknesses are and your strengths and learn to mitigate those weaknesses. Mm. Ultimately, in most cases, the only person that's going to give you any leeway for those weaknesses is yourself. Mm. Also, just a note, quite a few of these questions that have come in are actually fan submitted. So we're really thankful for our supporters and everyone who submits questions. 
it adds to our episodes and it's great to get these questions come through. So thank you guys. I am Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. And you are listening to Redacted. 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 It's often suggested that there are far more graduates than there are positions. If there are no jobs, why are universities, as a rule, allowing so many students to study design in the first place? When obviously, when the odds of getting a job outside of uni are so low. That is actually a really great question. The way I look at that is that industrial design has become such a broad discipline. We have such large possibilities of going into different areas of society that students, at least today, I see graduating are not the same from each other. They are not all going to the same industries. They're not all going to in-house traditional design positions. There's a lot of new businesses being started by industrial designers in different areas. And right now we need that. We need variety of how to tackle these problems that the world has today and how to go into those places from a profession that at its core is about looking for different solutions, different ways of approaching the big problems. It ends up with the students trying to figure out during their time in university what it is that they want, how do they want to contribute. If they can figure that out, there's many possibilities of doing that. It's a hard question because it's not just isolated to industrial design, this question. It's with everything. Definitely a wider case of the industrial education complex. Education is always a good thing overall. Uh, I don't think the Soviets would agree with you. For reference, Yvette, the Soviet Union, before they collapsed, 50% of the population had a university degree. Oh, wow. I was not aware of that number. Yeah, it was very high. And they obviously had lots of people studying physics, but not a lot of jobs in physics. Redacted. 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 It's sometimes said that those who can do and those who can't teach. Indeed, some of the worst teachers in many fields are the ones who never made it. How do you ensure those who teach design stay relevant and provide good student outcomes when many academics have been out of the industry for years or may have never worked in the design industry at all? Most of the faculty in the U.S. who teach industrial design are practitioners. Even if they're full-time faculty, like I am now, we still have our businesses. We still work with different companies. We still work in collaborations. I do feel that with something like industrial design, where you have to learn skills and become part of an industry and students are expected to practice when they come to these universities, our responsibility is to teach them that. So we need to be relevant. We need to understand what's going on in the industry. We need to have that experience. If we don't have it as faculty, I think it's our responsibility to find out how to achieve that knowledge of practice. It doesn't have to be in the same way. Not everybody has to have the same kind of experience. There's researchers who are doing research on grasshopper and people are doing research on the history of industrial design and people are doing research on different things. That's also valid. We need all those outlets. We need all those ideas to come in. But I do think that in the United States, at least in design education, it's very hard to see someone who's completely outside of what's going on. And I think that's an important part of design in the U.S. That's why it's doing a good job. Yes, most definitely. Are there any big challenges when it comes to having an academic team that has to have at least one foot in the real world? One of the biggest challenges in the U.S. is not only about practitioners and practicing, it's about the cost of education. Because of that, our responsibility is even bigger. People need to bring that value to the students. Our students cannot get an education that's not what they need. Do you have any tips and tricks to make sure that if you are going to uni or you're planning to do a master's, how do you get the most bang for your buck in terms of getting the most out of your education? I think to take advantage of education, from my experience, the students who are ready to take challenges, the students who are putting more time in than required, the students who are willing to collaborate with their classmates and learn from them, 
you come in with a lot of skills and a lot of knowledge, a lot of life experience that you can help others with and be open to what others can tell you as well. The students who take that approach, that come in with that motivation to learn from everybody in different ways, share their knowledge, are the ones who end up with the most experience as students and the ones who are going to understand how to deal with life afterwards, after university easily. They're the ones who are going to have a better opportunity to do that. It sounds like your journey has been similar to that the way you came in and you're working and studying at the same time. Is that something that was related to you growing up? You've always been hardworking and driven. I did grow up in a place where education was very strict. There's still vestiges of that in education and industrial design and in architecture. There's a lot of you are going to fail unless you do extremely well. But the midpoint was you're going to fail. Faculty would be almost rewarded if they failed half the class. (laughs) The stress levels were ridiculous. When I arrived at Pratt, I realized how different education could be. There was more of a motivational help from the faculty. They wanted you to pass. They wanted you to learn more than any grade or anything like that. For me, that was eye-opening, that change. That Pratt, I realized the other side, you worked hard, the expectations were very high, but it was about how do I help these students give the best of themselves? How do I help them? How do I support them within a very challenging and competitive environment? And the competition was more between yourself and what you wanted to do than backstabbing your peers to get ahead of them. You would actually work with them, each one on their own project, which was very different from what I had learned earlier. And maybe that has something to do with that. I figured out that the more you work, the more you give from yourself and you give to others, the better it is for you as well. Sounds like we missed out on the Pratt experience, Ollie. Yeah, maybe a little, but um, can't complain. (laughs) We saw a bit of backstabbing in our time. But if you are an academic listening in, what tips would you give to them on how to do it a better way than what they're doing right now? I would say, remember what it was like to be a student and what were the moments that helped you learn? What were the moments that helped you grow as a designer? What are those moments that you look back and say, oh, this was the best because this is where I actually got to understand what a specific concept or a specific skill was all about? Think about your own professional experiences when a boss or a coworker taught you something that made your life better or that changed the way you saw things. Those moments can be a positive way of teaching and not going the other way that I'm so good because I'm here, I'm your teacher, so I know everything. I think that's an old way of thinking about these things. I was just born earlier than somebody else. Doesn't mean I know more, right? Or, or I know how to do things in a better way. That's a wonderful attitude. I was born earlier, so therefore I am superior. When we were in university, they kept telling us the best way to get a job was networking, which no one could define back in the mid-2000s. And it generally turned into going to meetups for some sort of design conference, somehow managing to get a whole bunch of business cards off people who said, oh, let's hang out for a coffee. And then they'd never rock up if you tried to organize a time. What would you say the social aspects, the networking aspects of university should look like and how should you go about it? Look at your peers. They're going to be there. They're going to be part of your network forever. Those are the people who know you the best as a designer. They know where you came from. They know how you learned, how you got to where you did within university years. And they'll go to different areas, but they will always be around. The other thing to note is that our industry, at least in the U.S. and in New York, it's very small. Everybody has some sort of contact with somebody else. It's important to always consider that and never burn bridges, never leave a job in an unprofessional manner, because it will come back. Those people who are professional in every contact that they have as an intern, as a junior designer, those people will be remembered by their bosses, by their supervisor who was helping them in in their first jobs. Those people will remember them and always have a nice word for them. If you leave a job without saying anything, you ghost them, they'll remember as well. 
they will know, oh, that person, you can't trust that person. They will leave a project in the middle. Even if you're in different areas of the industry, the industry is so small, it will come back. You will be noticed, basically. So if you work hard, if you go to these meetings and meet people and find connections between them, you know somebody, it will make a difference. There is still something important about the networking aspect. You will get jobs because you know somebody. They'll think of you. They'll recommend you for an opening. There is something about that still. I don't know how fair it is in certain situations, but unfortunately, there is a lot of that still going on. It only takes one sometimes to get that next thing. Have you ever gotten a job through a recommendation? Yes. When you've worked for somebody and you do a good job, that person will be happy to say, oh, I know the perfect person who can help you with this project. She worked with me and she did a great job. Call her. I've been fairly lucky in that way. I've gotten a lot of recommendations from people I've worked with and they have recommended me to the new place they work at or somebody who asked them, a colleague who asked them about somebody. And if you do a good job, they'll call you again, right? The same company will call you again and will always consider you. I am Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. And you are listening to Redacted. 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 Would you say there's any weaknesses of the New York design culture versus the San Fran design culture? And what are the strengths of each? Well, I was in San Francisco for such a short time. It would be very presumptuous of me to say that I know how they work really well. <laughs> Since I've been here all my professional life. New York is such an amazing place for everybody to be doing whatever it is that they want to do. You can find all sorts of designers, all sorts of companies doing all sorts of explorations and new proposals that I think the downside of that is that we don't know what's really going on. We don't know enough. I'm sure there's so much happening that I don't know about. And I will probably stay within my little area of people who design, I don't know, tabletop and lighting. I will probably stay there and not know about all the other amazing things that are happening if I don't make an effort and go out and go to the shows and talk to people. So I think maybe that's the downside of it. But whatever you need done, whatever you're looking for, somebody will know somebody who's working on something with some material or a process or with other clients or somebody somewhere else in the world, somebody will be able to help you with that project that you're looking to fulfill. You talked earlier about how a lot of customers, they want assurance that you can do faucets. They want to see that you've done a faucet in prior. Do you have any good tactics or strategies to prevent yourself from getting typecast as well as branching out into new areas? I would say ask for opportunities every chance you have. It could be with a client that you've worked with. Tell them, I know you also work with these other kinds of products. I would love to help you on that area. Look for new collaborations with people outside of your circle. But I think that it's up to us not to be pigeonholed. And that was one of the things I learned by my experience of every time they asked me, so have you ever done this? And I would say, no, but I'm sure I can do it. Give me a chance. Some people will be open to that. They'll be careful with the first thing they give you, but they will see that you can do it. And then it's easier for them. The next time they have something out of the ordinary, they'll be like, no, this person can do it. This person can do anything. Building your studio, is that how you sort of found a lot of jobs? What were the ways that you gained your client base? What's the secret sauce? (laughs) For me, it was mostly about referrals. After I found one good client... That good client would tell somebody else, call Yvette, she helped me out with this. And then that person then told me, oh, call this other person. It's been also people I've worked with, colleagues who can't do something. They're like, Yvette, they're asking me to do this job and I don't have time. Could you do it for them? And I would go and do it for them. Colleagues have also hired me to help them with projects they're doing where they need an extra hand and I'll do the same. And that goes back to your network. Who is it that you trust enough? And it's usually your peers, the people you've worked with, the people you studied with, the people you talk to constantly in the industry, and you trust them and they'll do the same with you. They'll trust you with a project. 
I feel that I've been very lucky in that way, that I've had really great referrals from clients and from colleagues. I feel that I haven't had to go out there and look for clients as much as you would think just because of that. Once it starts, it sort of continues. Sometimes it's hard to say no because of that. You don't want it to stop, but you learn that also. You learn how to say, no, sorry, right now I can't do it, but there's this other person who could help you right now. These clients who are recommending you to others, were they on a shared workspace or were they big businesses? If I look back, I think most of them know each other from working together at some company and then they end up in different companies. So when they ask for help or when they're looking for somebody they need, they will ask their colleagues, people they've worked with before. It's a big network. All these connections happen all over and it doesn't have to be just within industrial designers. It's all our stakeholders, right? All the people around us are doing the same and we're part of that. We end up in little places here and there. How has your cultural background influenced your approach to teaching and design? It's about remembering where you come from and what you went through and your experiences and being open to different ideas and different ways in which your students are seeing the world. There's times where most of the time, actually, I have to put my own aesthetic sensibilities in the back seat and allow a student to tell me why they're making decisions they're making. And it's based on their own perception of the world, their own culture that they're bringing in. I find it extremely valid and extremely enriching for everybody else who's looking at it or working with them at that moment. When you do talk to either a new client or a new prospective student, how do you convince them that good design is a value add? The industry, the people I speak to are starting to understand that even before they speak to you. They know they need design. They know they need somebody to help them with giving that extra something to that product. And our job is to give them that confidence that, yes, I can help you with that. I can actually bring that value that you're looking for into your project. A lot of that has to do with how you bring them into the process. If you make them privy to all the steps you're taking, you're including them in the decision making in a certain way. You show them what you're doing very clearly and honestly. They will continue to understand this and they will get it every time a little more, a little more. They'll see the value that you bring because you're showing them what you're doing. You're not teaching them how to do it themselves, but you're including them in the process itself. I completely understand and that's great. It's sometimes hard to explain the value to external stakeholders sometimes when a project isn't going the way you want it though if you're showing them okay these were our assumptions this is what happened after we did some testing these were the insights that we achieved or that came out of that process they will understand what's going on and they will be open to changes that are necessary to direct that project or that object if it's a system whatever it is that outcome into a valuable place It will be easier for you to get them on board on the changes that need to be made if they're part of it, if they're involved. If not, if you're just coming up with ideas and showing them and they don't understand where they came from, they don't understand why you're asking for a change, then it's going to be very hard for you to convince them that they need to let go of a couple of assumptions or a couple of points that they thought were essential. So if I was to summarize, you need to give the client a sense of agency over the process. They are part of the project. You can't freeze them out because you're worried that they will take away your part in it or something, right? (laughs) Well, they might just try. (laughs) Yeah. Redacted. 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 Tell us a bit about some of your favorite designs at the moment or recent designs that you've done or even seen or things you're excited about in the design world. Right now, I'm very excited about the possibility of regenerative materials. And yes, this comes mostly from the academic side, but I'm very excited to see it bridging into the industry. It's going to be tough. It's still not there. But it's taking so much strength within academia that I think it just has to start becoming real. 
It has to start becoming part of the industry. You're already seeing companies trying to show their sustainability side and they want to make it happen. Some companies still can't make the price points what they need to be so that they can compete with it. But you can see the wanting to get there. Our students are really excited to go out in there and start making those changes, even if it's in a little way. I had this job where I felt such a part of the problem where everything I was designing was probably going into a landfill within a short period of time. At the time, I was just an industrial designer and as part of the whole company, my voice could be very, very little, but it could make big changes. These products were being produced at enormous numbers. And if you made a small change, if you could make a little decision that could affect the whole run, it was huge. And it started there. And then my boss got on board. So I could hear her telling her boss, what if we don't make it in this material? What if we look at this other material instead? Or what if we don't do a double material object so that it's not as difficult to break apart when it's at end of use? You start hearing that. So your little voice as an intern or as a junior designer starts becoming larger. And that's what excites me. Yeah, there's so much happening in that space. It is really exciting. It's a challenge, though. You're right. It's changing the ways of how everyone thinks at a lot of levels. But each product can improve. It's step by step. That's the thing. Circling back on those regenerative materials, are there any practical applications that you expect to see and you're excited about on the forefront that's going to happen in a couple of years? There's one example that I'm thinking of. There were a group of students at Parsons. They were in the undergraduate program and they did as a capstone. They were looking on seaweed as a way of making straws. And this was a few years ago where there was this huge problem with straws and how they were killing marine life. So they students started a company where they started doing straws with seaweed. Is it lollyware? Yes, lollyware. But they didn't stop there. They're now creating pellets that could be used with industry existing plastic molding facilities. They're going into the injection molding of plastics, but with the seaweed. So you're not changing the machinery. You're not changing the system. You're just going in there with a new material that could make a huge difference. I don't know how far they've gotten with it, but I think they're going at a very fast pace. Fascinating. We'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. It's a good story. There's something that reminds me of, which is sort of more science-based. There's a company here in Australia that are producing seaweed to feed livestock, which in turn reduces their emissions and they've been farming it a lot in Tasmania here in Australia and producing it on a large scale now to feed livestock, which in turn helps the overall environmental effects of the livestock. Supposedly it helps the cows not fart. Yeah, that's methane. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, exciting things with seaweed happening. In a different frame, what have been the biggest challenges in your career? I think the biggest challenge for me throughout my career, starting from very young, was not feeling ready for something and losing opportunities because of that. I always felt like my portfolio isn't ready. It's not perfect. It's not showing exactly what I need to show. They're not going to give me that job without even trying. I know I lost a lot of opportunities because of that. I would feel very, very scared of showing my work sometimes. And I feel that that's something I've learned. I've been learning that we're at a moment in time. This is who I am right now. This is what I've done. I can't spend time fixing it because then I'll never show it. I'll never get there. That was one thing that I feel has been the biggest challenge for me. Fair enough. Yeah. What about an early success? Where do we find this documentary of yours on industrial designers? It was called Designers on Design. And I chased about 80 designers, all my heroes at the time. I was shaking when I was talking to them, asking them questions about where design was headed, what they thought about design. Very quick, because it was in the middle of shows and wherever I saw them. My boss at the time from Totem Design would stand behind a column and say, you see that guy with the green sweater? 
that's Jasper Morrison. And I would run and ask him questions. <laughs> it was a great moment. I wanted to learn from these heroes at the time. When I was a young designer, we did have those star designers. They seem to level down a little right now. But at that time, it was huge. You wanted to work for them. You wanted to be like them. You wanted to get to that level of recognition. That was this documentary. It's in my website. We'll link it in the show notes. This feeling of not being ready, were there times that you missed something or you think you missed out on something? You weren't ready and you didn't get a project or something like this. And then you've gone on and then something else has happened that's been wonderful. And you look back on it now and think, oh, that didn't really matter. Or this actually led me to this amazing other area. Looking in hindsight, when I was very young, I wanted to be in a consultancy. I remember saying, I have to apply to smart design. I never applied because I was so scared that they were not going to like my portfolio or that I wasn't showing everything. And then because of that, I ended up taking a job in the faucet industry, which at the time I thought I wasn't going to like. I said, well, I'll do this while I get into the consultancy. And it ended up being one of the best jobs I've ever had. It started my career as a professional industrial designer in a way. And I learned so much. I got to travel to factories in Europe. I got to speak with engineers everywhere and all sorts of salespeople and marketers. I got to travel to all the fairs and shows. It gave me that confidence that I didn't have, that I could show my work and that I was ready as an industrial designer. I think I was hiding behind trying to learn about design too much and not feeling confident that I could do it. And that job, I'm still in contact with them. My boss is still one of my mentors, basically. I still consider him one of my mentors. I learned so much from him. And because of that, I got another job. And because of that, I got more jobs. And then I opened my studio. And it was a very important thing for me. And if I had gone the other way, I would have probably never found that. And I love faucets now. I really love designing them. I am Yvette Chaparro. Yvette Chaparro. And you are listening to Redacted. 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 To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. What's your favorite object that you've gotten recently that's under $100? Ooh, under $100. We can bend the rules if it's a bit above. So I have no idea how much this cost. It was a gift that I received. It's this little teapot by Muji in Japan. They have this special side, which is not in the U.S., where they're going to old artisans in Japan who have this knowledge of materials and of making for centuries. One of my colleagues from Parsons brought it for me as a gift. He went with Parsons to Japan with some students and he brought me this one. And I thought it's so beautiful and it's so simple and it's industrially produced, but it has all this history to it. And the material is beautiful. It's so nice to the touch. It could be considered very modern, right? Very contemporary in a way. And it comes from a very long history. A great example. I will definitely have a link to that in the show notes because I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this name. And is it less than $100? I don't know. Uh, yes, it is. It is $88 US. Oh, nice. <laughs> Just for everyone's reference, it's a teapot. Made out of clay. Very beautiful Japanese teapot. Great history in Japan making all kinds of ceramic objects. Many beautiful ones, which I saw recently when I was there. It was fantastic. Couldn't take enough home, really. Wanted to get a lot, but you can't always. Redacted. 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 What advice would you give someone who maybe not be so disciplined or maybe lacking in confidence in design, who wants to be an industrial designer, but they just can't? get over some hurdles or get the skill set to the right level to get that job or to get that client or to build their consultancy? The same way I had that block with not feeling ready. We all have blocks in different ways. 
one thing is to feel like, oh, maybe some of my skills are not at the same level as other people. And it's to accept that that's where you are right now. And I don't have to be like other people. I don't have to be like that. Maybe I'm really good at coming up with ideas. Maybe I'm really good at telling stories. Maybe I'm really good at helping people figure out where the connection points are. All those are needed in a design team. So it's maybe a matter of embracing that skill that you have, that you can contribute with and making that the center of your portfolio, making that the center of how you sell yourself as a designer. Make that your superhero ability, your one strength where you can be the number one at it. Not everybody knows how to draw perfectly. Not everybody knows how to make things with their hands perfectly. And they're still amazing industrial designers. They have a lot to teach the rest as well. And they'll work in a team amazingly. Every team needs somebody like that. I would say not give up, keep working. And of course, you can always get better at those skills that you feel you're not good enough at. You can always get better. But to embrace that one thing that you feel can make you different or can help a group project in industrial design. It's very refreshing to hear you say, I went on a vacation. Every day is like a vacation. What about the discipline? Feeling that when you go to a job, you're feeling happy about it. I would say, yeah, enjoy what you're doing. If it is a pain to go somewhere and do work every day, then maybe look for something that excites you a little more. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it takes time to find that place, but look for it. It could be that it just takes your nights and weekends to do what you really love to do and you get really good at that. And then while you're doing something you don't like as much, right? Or look for what of that job you're not liking, you do like, and maybe start trying to be the person who does that thing that you like doing. And then that can lead to the next big thing. Redacted. 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 Thank you, Yvette, for joining us on the show today. We've really enjoyed sharing your knowledge and your in-depth insights with us. Thank you. We're confident that the audience will enjoy it too. To our listeners, we appreciate your fan-submitted questions. They really make a huge difference and add great insights as well. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to anything we've mentioned and discounts from PCBWay. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Redact... The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been... Redacted, 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 redacted.